Well, we're in the midst of our Money and Possessions uh, series, and so we're going to go ahead and uh, address that issue. And so um, let's go ahead and um, turn over, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, all right? We're going to just use this, again, as a springboard to move along here today. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been addressing this issue, and I just want to hear how this sounds out here. I don't know why it just doesn't sound right to me today, but it probably is perfectly fine. One, two, three. One, two, three. Turn me up, would you please? That'd be good. Turn me up a little bit. 
I just want to get a little more out there, so thank you. So I don't have to yell tonight, and if I do, you'll hear me. <clears throat> but um, we've been dealing with our perspective concerning money and possessions and addressing that issue, and we know that Jesus talked a lot about that. It's very important how we view money. It's very important how we view our possessions. And obviously, the Word of God makes it important as well. And, you know, we said that 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. That's quite a bit. And so we see that throughout the Word of God, it's an important topic, an important issue. And, uh,. You know, one of the greatest temptations that we face as believers in America is this tremendous temptation of materialism in our culture. Whether we'd like to believe it or not, or whether we'd admit it or not, more than likely, we've been affected by it, I'm sure. The idea that finances and money are so awfully important, so necessary and needful in the Christian life. And may I say that they play a role, but we have to be very careful. The Bible simply says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And sometimes that gets a little bit twisted, doesn't it? A little bit mixed up in our world, in the culture we live. And as a result, even in the believer's life, we've been, I guess, sorely affected. We, we talked about this idea of our position concerning money and possessions. And we said that it's that of a steward. We are simply stewards. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And the principle that we noted there was that you and I are stewards of God's heritage. That there's nothing that is really ours. Everything in our lives is God's. And we're simply the stewards over His substance and over His possessions. And that meant then that every one of our children are His. Every spouse is His. Every house is His. Every car is His. Every Dime is his. Everything is his. And as we take that idea and that philosophy, as we adopt it as our own, it changes how we choose to spend our money, how we use the finances that God has entrusted into our care. Our position concerning money and possessions. So we noted the perspective and our position. And then last week we, we asked, started asking questions. And The question was, do I have to be poor to please God? And of course, we learned that God blessed both men and women in the Bible with finances. And as a result of that, he certainly couldn't have believed that money was inherently evil then because he wouldn't have given them finances. So the the, the prosperity that God gives is evidence that in and of itself, that is not bad. So you don't have to be poor to please God, that's for sure. You don't have to. And today, we want to start by asking this question. At what point does money interfere with my relationship with God? At what point does money interfere with my relationship with God? And I'm going to look at that today for just a little bit. But today we're at Philippians 2.5, and I think that this ought to be our real goal, whether it's in money and finances or whether it has to do with our family and our our friends, or just every aspect of life, when he simply says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May we have the mind of Christ when it comes to finances. May we recognize uh, how he feels and what he believes and adopt that as our principles for living and our guide. So much of the stress that we feel in life is brought on by our own. 
negligence to adopt a biblical principle. God's principles bring peace and ultimately prosperity. The Bible calls it good success. But not prosperity necessarily in dollar numbers. And we'll talk about that later in our series because there are some things that are much more valuable than money. But that doesn't mean, as we said already, that money is inherently evil because it is not. As we noted, it is the love of money that is. And so tonight, let's consider this this thought. At what point does money interfere with my relationship with God? Because the truth ought to be, not one of us in this room ought to want money to interfere with our relationship. We should never want that to be the case. And so I, I got to believe that you're here tonight because you are really trying and seeking to, you know, honor God with not just your time and your energy, but with your finances as well. I don't believe you'd be here on a Wednesday night if you didn't have a desire to honor Christ. And so let's see what we can learn tonight that will help us, every one of us, to ensure that we don't allow our money or possessions to, I guess, interfere with our relationship with God. Father, we come to you. Bless us in these next few minutes and speak to our hearts. And Lord, encourage us. Be glorified now, Father, in what is said. And may it truly impact our hearts and help us in the future and even in the immediate. We need you, Lord. May we have the proper perspective concerning money and finances. We'll thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so at what point does money interfere with my relationship with God? Well, first of all, when you trust in money rather than trusting in God. I mean, that seems pretty clear, doesn't it? I mean, that's not that big of a deal in that sense that it's not so profound. You go, wow, I never would have thought that, never would have dreamed it. No, I mean, I'm sure you've thought of it. When you trust in money rather than trusting in God, that means that it's going to interfere with your relationship with God. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. You see a tremendous passage in the the gospel here. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. We're going to read through verse 27 tonight. Notice 23 through 27. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked upon them, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Now the passage addresses those that have riches and how those riches can hinder and even keep a person from entering the kingdom of God. Now I want you to note here in the passage it says, How hardly shall they, in verse 24. How hardly, excuse me, verse 23. How hardly. And then it goes on later to say, How hard speaking about this issue of the the rich making their way into the kingdom. 
That's an interest. Those are interesting thoughts, interesting phrases. He goes on to illustrate the point in verse 25. Notice what he says in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now again, it's funny because on one side of that passage, the Bible tells us that they were astonished to hear that news. On the other side of that passage now, after hearing that statement in verse 25, Now it says they're astonished out of measure. So their astonishment has gone to another level now. Where once they were astonished, now after hearing that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the the kingdom of God, they say, wow, now we are, I mean, like, astonished to the roof. Now again, we have to understand that Historically speaking, as they look back on their heritage and they look at the patriarchs, they recognize men and uh, men like Abraham, men like Isaac and Jacob, as they consider David and Solomon and other great men of God in the past. They can't help but be, I guess, recognize that prosperity seemed to be the sign of God's favor. Because it seems that those that were rich in those days, that were the patriarchs, uh, God's favor was all over them. His hand was all over them. And so in the Old Testament, we often recognize that God blessed those people that obeyed him with the things necessary and needful. Matter of fact, Israel itself, as long as they obeyed God, then they would prosper as a nation. But in the New Testament, things were a little bit different. Do you realize that God doesn't promise us the kind of physical blessings that maybe even Abraham was promised in obedience to God. I mean, we look around us and we see people that, are, have, that have cancer and we see folks that are young going through tragedy and trials. We recognize people that are hurting all the time and they're believers and we think to ourselves, wait, they've come to Christ, they know Jesus now as their Savior. Why in the world does God allow that to happen to them? I mean, if God was there and if God really loved them, if God really cared, why would that happen? And so many times that seems to be our attitude because we have somehow bought into the idea that because we're children of God, God owes us some sense of loyalty and and our health ought to be good and we ought to be wealthy and we shouldn't have any bills and people ought to love us and things ought to be well in our lives. But that is not the case at all. If anything, God promised that we would be persecuted and God promised that we would have to endure heartache and that even the world itself groaneth as a result of sin. So as we transition from the Old to the New Testament, we recognize that God's blessings seem to take on somewhat of a different type of sense. And no longer is it kind of the the physical side of prosperity pointing to the favor of God in that regard. But now we see in the New Testament, very different, that prosperity is not, nor is it, an evidence of favoritism of God or any kind of spirituality. But that's not how we designate it. That's not how we de- to define success in the Christian life is through prosperity. That's not how you do it at all. These guys, back then, as they're listening to Jesus talk, he, he mentions this thing called the, the, the gate called the eye of the needle. And, and some believe, literally, when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, some would say, well, that refers to an actual gate, a literal gate called the eye of a needle. And... 
Basically, when the main gate uh, at night was bolted and shut, they say the travelers sought access, those that sought access to the city after hours, if you will, would then have to enter in through what was called the, the eye of the needle. And it was a smaller gate. And that smaller gate uh, was so small that if you had a, a camel or some kind of load-bearing animal that was carrying your, your, your things, they couldn't fit through there. You'd have to unburden the animal and take all the, the, the load off and allow that animal to somehow crawl through that eye of the needle gate. And so the idea was that it, it's easier for that camel to go through that eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or God. And, and they said, see, that's, that's what it's really teaching. But I think maybe, I do, I, I'm really convinced in my own mind pretty much that it wasn't a gate. I'm not convinced, first of all, when I look into the aspect of, of you know, I look into um, uh, archaeology and I, I consider some of the things and look at the city walls and different things like that, I don't even know if there ever was an eye of a needle gate. I, I'm not sure that it's there. I don't, I don't believe it even necessarily existed. And, and I guess what I want you to realize is on one hand that there is no real evidence then that there is such a gate. Now again, maybe you can find it, but I haven't found it yet. And the fact is, is that the context of the passage does not demand that there's an explanation that fits it that way. It doesn't have to be that. See, it could literally be the eye of a needle. And you say, but that's ridiculous. Because an eye of a needle, there's no way in the world it would be impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Exactly. Now let me ask you, how impossible is it for you to get saved yourself? Are you able to unload your burden of sin and make your way through a little hole to make it into heaven? No, you have no hope whatsoever to get into heaven. Trusting your riches, trusting yourself, trusting your deeds, trusting anything but Jesus Christ. There is no hope because Jesus Christ saves you completely. It is his supernatural work in your life that saves you. It's not because you decided to get saved one day. And it's not just a simple prayer you prayed. It's Jesus Christ doing a supernatural work in your life and taking you from the outside and placing you in Christ. And it's the same for me, too. And I'm not so sure that it wasn't a literal eye of a needle he's talking about. And he's expressing the idea how impossible it is for, for rich or anyone, for that matter, to make it through. See, it, these disciples were just floored by this news. I mean, if a rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? That was their question. Because again, back in their culture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the major patriarchs, they were all being saved. They were saved, if you will, in that regard. They weren't in the body of Christ, but they they were saved in the sense that they'll be in heaven one day. But the fact is, is that God blessed them with material blessings because of their obedience And they're now looking and going, if a rich man can't be saved, how in the world? Who in the world can be saved? Good question. And we learn in the New Testament the answer to that question. As we've already stated, it isn't money, but the love of money that's the root of all evil. And when a person trusts money above God, then money is taking God's rightful place in their life. 
See, our God is a jealous God. And the Bible says in Exodus 34, 14, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I love that. His name is Jealous. Now let me tell you something, and again, I, I like that because, see, when I first married my wife, and I'm not nearly as bad as I was then, I was a, my name was Jealous. My name was Jealous. My wife and I had the, one of the biggest knockdown drag outs, so to speak. Not that, you know, she didn't knock me down too hard. But uh, we, we had, I mean, a big blowout right before we got married. The night before we got married. The night before. Let me tell you what it was about. She, she lived on her own with a friend. And her friend had her sister come into town for the wedding. And, and, and had her friend in town for some things going on or whatever. And her friend brought her husband. And her husband was staying the night in the same house that my to-be wife was going to be in. And I said to Sherry, I don't like this arrangement at all. And boy, I mean, before it was over with, she's like, we're not married yet. And if she didn't say it, I know she wanted to. And boy, I was going, as my dad would say, buck wild. Finally, I left there after I dusted myself off. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. And everything turned out fine. As you know, it is a storybook marriage. But boy, I, my name was Jealous. I was in bad shape. Hey, I, I used to say, well, you know, God gave this to me. I'm just a reflection of my father. And she said, yeah, don't go there. <clears throat> but he says, for thou shalt worship no other God. God is not in the business of sharing his honor and his glory with others. Now, I'm sure that mine was not justified, but his is justified. And we cannot allow money to take the place of God in our lives. And you know, money will let you down every single time. In Proverbs eleven four, the Bible says, Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Boy, I'll tell you what, it'll let us down. Money will let us down. It always will. And so when the Lord brings up this whole situation, as he begins to talk about money and those and how difficult it is to make their way into heaven, man, he uses, some, uses an illustration that floored them. But he's trying to get across this idea. Listen, do not allow yourself to trust in the money. Don't allow yourself to focus on money. Don't think somehow that that money's going to ever gain you any favor with God. It's not. It's not like that. It doesn't work that way. So we have to be so careful. So when you trust in money rather than trusting in God, then it is already interfering with your relationship with God. And, and listen, we could go through the crowd right now and I could say, okay, give me, give me ideas or give me some uh, illustrations or situations where money could possibly take the place of God. You know, substitute for God in our lives. And I get, guarantee you we'd get a number of responses because we all understand what that's about. Not only that, but at what point does money interfere with my relationship with God? Well, 
when your affections are set on earth, your earthly possessions instead of your heavenly possessions. When we get our eyes focused on the earth instead of on the things above, that becomes a real problem now. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Notice what it says here. 19, 6, uh, 6 verse 19. Go ahead and turn there. That's a good passage. Matthew 6, verse 19. We're going to look at through verse 21. So when your affections are set on your, uh, on your earthly possessions instead of your heavenly possessions. <clears throat> That's a problem. It says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now again, we trust, touched on that last point a little bit ago, a few weeks back, when we talked about the order of things. Where your treasure is versus it's not where your heart is. And how we said, you know, it's important where we invest our finances and how we invest them. Because where we invest and where our money is is where our heart is, the Bible says. But again, he's saying, lay not up for yourselves treasures, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Now, when you really think about that, and if you really wanted to ask yourself a, a real uh, probing question, it'd be, how much of what I utilize my finances for and my possessions for is eternal versus temporal? One day in heaven, how much will I have sent ahead? And I'm not just talking about giving to missions. You know, I mean, there's a number of ways that we can utilize our finances for the work of God and the things of God that doesn't just talk about giving money to missions, okay? I mean, of course, we can give our tithes and our offerings. We talk about offerings and so forth. But, but the fact is, is that there's a number of other ways we can use our finances. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, what am I doing with what God's given me? I mean, do I really focus my attention on the things right now, the here and now, or do I have a focus on the future? Do I see things in eternity? Do I recognize the need to utilize what God has given me, entrusted to me, literally for the purpose of tomorrow, not just today? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Man, God's trying to get us to realize that this isn't where life is really lived. This isn't what it's all about. We live a life today in preparation for tomorrow. I mean, this life is about tomorrow, really. And so many times the devil gets our focus on now. Me today what I need now. And yet God's saying, listen, realize that there's a tomorrow. There's an eternity that awaits us. And Jesus Christ died for us and was buried and rose again. And he gave to us what kind of life? Eternal life. And the moment we trust Christ, we stop being creatures of this world and we become citizens of heaven. And therefore our heart ought to be focused on the things of Christ and the things of the home above and beyond. What Solomon say? We talked about it the other night. Vanity of vanity, all is what? Vanity. He looked at this life and he said, man, it's all so vain. It's so empty. But boy, when you are young, especially, it's all there is. 
If you're not careful and you're not in the Word of God and you don't possess the mind of Christ, you will waste your youth on trying to get something that the world says is worth getting and find out later that you wasted your years. We'll waste them. How many people thought that if once they bought their first home, if I could only own my own home, I will have arrived. When they got there, what did they realize? Oh, this is how it feels? Now I got a big payment. Now I got to pay taxes. Now I can't lose my job or I'll lose my house. All I'm saying is, is that it never is what you think it is. They used to say the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, the devil always makes you believe that what you're chasing is worth giving your life for. You better make sure what you're chasing is something God says is worth giving your life for. Otherwise, you'll be sadly disappointed laying on your deathbed. Or when you meet Jesus face to face, especially. The truth is that we all must be very careful in this area. So when your affections are set on your Earthly possessions instead of your heavenly possessions. Well, guess what? Uh, Your money is probably interfering with your relationship with God. Now, let me finish with this. When you think your own spirituality, another man's spirituality, or God's blessings can be measured by material possessions. Now, we talked about this, but I want to try to add a little bit to this. Luke chapter 12, 12, verse 15 says, "And And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That is such a powerful statement. I mean, he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. I mean, again, we could make that real simple. And again, it's probably too simple. But wanting things that are not yours, maybe someone else's, feeling somehow that you're missing out, always looking at something or someone else and what they have is something you would want for yourself in a sense. And again, that's a very simplistic response or or definition. However, it helps us as we look at, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. So we're always chasing after something in, in, in humanity. We're always looking for something else. But every time we achieve it, as we mentioned just a moment ago, well, it really doesn't fulfill us, nor does it satisfy us long term. It's simply temporary. And the truth is, is that, as he says here, you know, man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Because once again, when we're laying on that deathbed, we will not go through our portfolio of properties and somehow believe that that made us who we are and that's what's valuable, that's what's important. And if it is important as you lay there, my friend, you will be sadly disappointed when you face the master. I have rarely, if ever, talked to somebody that was in a position where they're ready to meet their maker and then talk to me about, well, I'm really sad about leaving my house. I'm really upset about leaving my car. You can't believe it. I just bought a piece of property and I thought there would be gold on it. No one's ever said that to me. You know what they always say? They always say things like, man, I, I'm going to miss my wife. I'm going to miss my children. I wish I had more time to spend with my family. I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. I wish I would have spent more time doing this instead of pursuing money or going after this or doing that. That house doesn't mean anything now. Those are the things I hear. 
1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord saith unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Well, God does look at our hearts, doesn't he? Now, some will twist that verse and talk about how you don't ever have to dress a certain way. You never have to act a certain way. You can live however you want, do whatever you want. God knows your heart. That's not the intent of the passage at all. I mean, he's, he's, he's looking for the next king of Israel. Or the first, he's looking for this king, I mean, to take over for Saul. And, and unfortunately, he's got the prophet. And guess what the prophet's like? He's like every other human being. You know what we look at? The stature. We see the outside. We don't look at the heart like we ought to. We see the person outside. Guess what that says to me then? That says then that because of people, and we do have a testimony before the world, the Bible says, we do need to be concerned about the outward because that's all they see. They don't see your heart. That ought to be a good reason for you to look and act and be different because they don't even see your heart. So that's the real context of it. Note the warning in James, though, concerning favoritism. And this is what I want to talk about for just a couple minutes as we close. But James 2, verse 1. Because, again, if we're not careful in churches, we, we, get the, we get the bum rap sometimes here at the church. Not at this church, maybe, but I'm saying at churches. You know, and, and maybe sometimes it's true. I don't know. And, and I really have a problem with this if this is truly the case. But this idea of favoritism, it, it, it bothers me. Okay, now watch what happens here in James 2, 1 through 5. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, if we talked about respect of persons, we're probably talking about respecting a person, uh, putting someone here, right? Respect of persons. Someone's being elevated, put up on a higher plane than maybe someone else. He says here, He says, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. Vile raiment is not that he's got a picture of something immoral on his shirt. Vile raiment that he's talking about is that somebody that doesn't have money, somebody that's got rags on versus somebody that's got a nice Armonti suit on. Somebody that legitimately can't afford it for whatever reason, legitimately can't. I'm not talking about they just downright don't care anyway. But the fact is, is that even if they don't care at the time they walk through the door of the church, even if for some reason they could care less what they look like and they're wearing a bunch of shredded rags and they look like they just got out of a mud pit, so to speak, he says, listen, you be careful how you treat them and how you deal with them because you're not to deal with them in respect of persons. And, and here's what happens. Watch this now. He goes on to say, And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. And he's not talking about what we understand gay, because the word gay doesn't mean what it means today, because they've taken it and they've ripped it and destroyed it, and they've messed it all up. It used to mean happy clothing. It used to mean something that was bright and, 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 and nice and good, and now they've turned it into a perversion. But he says, him that weareth gay clothing, and say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, stand thou here, or sit under my footstool. 
So again, there's partiality taking place. Somebody walks through that door looking like a million bucks. Somebody else comes through who's just got some nasty old clothes on. It doesn't look like they got two nickels to rub together. And we go, oh, look at them. They're so good looking. Look so sharp. They got money. Look at their, I bet, oh, that's a nice watch he's wearing. Woo, look at those shoes. Alligator skin shoes. And they, wow, that guy. Can, uh, ushers, can you take them and put them over here somewhere? Because you know they've got the smell. And let me go introduce myself to these people. I mean, that's basically what he's talking about. And and notice this. He goes on to say, Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? You know what he's really saying? Again, he's kind of get, saying to us, you better wake up and smell the coffee, people, because the truth is, it's not normally the guy that comes in in an armatic suit that's going to be walking with God the way he ought to walk with God. It's going to probably be that poor guy over here that has nothing and realizes how good God's been. Now, the point 100% is this. You cannot gauge spirituality. You cannot look at someone on the outside and determine how spiritual they are. And may I say to you today, if there is one thing in the church that gripes me to no end, that bothers me like nobody's business, it's this. When somebody comes to that door and they are good looking and they are sharp looking and they've got nice clothes on and it's a good looking guy and a good looking gal and they call themselves Christians, everybody starts drooling and going, wow, oh, they're really, wow. You see them? Oh, wow. Pastor, did you see that couple? Pastor, did you meet them? Pastor, did you see those folks sitting in the corner over there? And I'm thinking, what about the six other couples that came in here? I'm sorry, but that bothers me. I, I don't, it just gets to me. Because it reeks of partiality to me. Oh boy, they are probably got a lot of money. Boy, they could help the church. Wow. Whatever. I'll take about 10 Social Security widows. And I'll tell you, they'll give more than probably him 10 times over. You'd be surprised who gives the most in this church. You'd be surprised who carries the burden of this ministry. The next time you look at one of these older people and think, wow, they can hardly get around. Wow, look at them. They don't have much money at all. You'd be surprised. They're the ones that send their tithes in when they miss. They send them in. They go on vacation and write ahead of time. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, I'm just saying, we really don't see the real truth. We miss it. Let me have um, Chase, you just called to preach. Come on up here. Brother, you come on. You're all fired up the other night. Let's see if you're still fired up. Come on up. Come on, stand here. One right there and one right over there. Hurry up. Move it. I ain't got time. We're closing out on time here. You guys are teenagers. You're supposed to move. Now, watch this. Here it goes. Watch this now. Both are faithful to every service. Have person, this, I'm going to go to another level. I'm going to make some more clarification. Both are faithful to every service. Have personal standards. Go out soul winning. Witness to family and friends. Bring visitors to church. Study their Bibles. Pray. Support the church with their tithes and offerings. And stand behind the leadership of the pastor and staff. 
And they're both equally qualified. Question. Here it is now. Watch. Here's the question. A teaching position is opened up. Which of the two would you most likely give the job to and why? They're equally qualified. They're equally faithful. Who's going to get the job? Which one of these two guys is going to get the job? You say, well, they're both qualified. I don't know. That's a tough call, right? I mean, they they have the exact same quality. I guess you'd have to interview them, right? I guess you'd have to see which one has the bigger heart for the job, right? Which one has even maybe more of a desire for the job than the other? Which one has maybe the the ability time-wise to spend on that particular ministry the most? Which one maybe could was willing to make a greater investment in that ministry than the other? Maybe it would be more of a judgment call based on your interview and how you deal with those two guys. And so I go over here and I talk to him about, man, listen, we've got this position available. Wondering how you, if you'd like it or not. Wondering if you'd enjoy that kind of position. What do you think about that? How's your work schedule compared to, you know, the schedule of the church? Are you going to be able to put the time in to study, prepare, and ready yourself? I know you're out souling already. I know you're already faithful to God. I know you're faithful in giving. I realize you're a good Christian. I know that you like to study your Bible and pray. you got all the qualifications, but are you a good fit for this job? Talk to me. Hey, by the way, I know that you got all the tangibles that are necessary and needful to be the kind of teacher we need here at the church. I'm really proud of how you've been moving along in your Christian life. But listen, I know we got this position available. Wondered if you're even interested in it. And it's number two, if you are, I just wonder by chance how your job will line up with that. What kind of time will you have for the, the ministry? Will you be able to invest in the kids, invest in the ministry the way that, you'd, that we would like you to and the way you would like to? Is this a good time in your life for that kind of investment? Now, let me ask you something. I choose that guy right there. Or one of my staff chooses that guy right there after the interview, after talking to both. Let me ask you, is there any favoritism there? Is there favoritism? Can somebody answer me? That's not favoritism. You know what in churches you hear all the time? I wonder why they picked him instead of him. He's qualified. He's qualified. Oh, I know what happened. His dad goes to this church too. His parents were, were members of the church 20 years ago, and now here he is. He's more. That's why, because his dad used to be, a, his dad was a member of the church for 20 years. Really? That's, you think that's how shallow we are around here? Would you, you would really fall into that trap of the devil to think there was favoritism? Partiality? Let's, one more, one more scenario. Here's another scenario. Person number one, there he is, right there, looking sharp with his suit. He is a good person. And he attends church multiple times a week. He supports the church through his giving. Good man. He shakes hands. He even helps out ushering sometimes. This guy right here, well, he's also a good person. He attends church service, every church service. He goes out soul winning. He gives, he, he, he gives biblically. He participates in activities and workshops. And you know, when there's things need done around here, no one asks him. He just jumps in and does it. A teaching position is opened up. 
Which of the two would you most likely give the job to and why? Which would you give it to? Why is it so quiet? I think it's pretty obvious to me. I don't know about you. Don't you think this guy has proven that he's going to stand up and take care of the business without question? He's stepping up even when he's not even asked. He's out soul winning. This guy's not out soul winning. This guy is, though. There's only one position. You can't give them both the position. One of the two's got to have the position. The question I want for you and that I have for you is this. Is it partiality to choose the guy that's already doing everything that's needed to be a teacher? Hasn't he proven himself faithful already? But in churches across America, that decision's made, and somehow, some way, so many times, people want to cry partiality. They find a reason. Well, his mother, I heard she gave a big donation to the church during the, during the, the bus meetings. When they were talking about the, bus, the buses, she gave a chunk of change to buy a bus. That's why he's probably, he got chose because of that. And they left that poor guy out on his own. Oh, really? First of all, you don't know what she gave. You're hearing something that's probably not even true. And if you do want to give a chunk to the bus ministry, let me know. We'd be more than happy to accept it. But it is not partiality to say, boy, this guy's soul winning. This guy's already stepping up. He's coming to the work days without even being asked. He's everywhere and all the time, anywhere you need him, and you don't even have to beg him or ask him. He's already on board 100% all the time. This is a good guy. Nobody's questioning that. This is a guy that's pretty much faithful. But he's not out soul winning. He hasn't made certain commitments yet, although he has potential to do so, and he's being encouraged to do so. But maybe this just isn't his time yet. But that guy for sure has proven he can. And when he gets chosen, that is not partiality. That's just good business. So make sure that when you start thinking about things that go on in your church... That you're, not, you're careful not to, first of all, run right to the partiality thing. Those verses aren't about getting the most qualified. That's about choosing somebody or looking at somebody and saying, obviously, they're what we want because they look the part. And we know he doesn't look it at all. Right, Chase? See? He agrees. So that wasn't partiality, brother, because you'd have been picked for sure. All right, get out of here, guys. Someone says, why do you talk about those things? Because, as I told you a million times before, preventive maintenance saves a lot of trouble in churches. If you are ever tempted to think those things, you better first go to the source and ask the right questions. And that isn't your local friend or your other, your, your church mate. Amen. You know, you come to the source if you're really that upset and you think there's a problem. And you say, how come so-and-so got chosen over this person? 
But you better be ready to take the answer and you keep your mouth shut if somebody tells you the truth. Because it's nobody's business, really, except God's, the pastor's, and the person's involved. And if you're that bold to come, I'm gonna, I may tell you something, but if you go ahead and turn around, the pastor said you aren't even qualified. <laughs> you see how the, where that goes? Well, that's dangerous stuff. You could tear a, a person's life up, leave them sitting on the outside, not even wanting anything to do with church again, just because you got a burr. You better be careful that it's not really about you in the long run. Because in the long run, it's never about one of us. It's always about him. And so we're just trying to protect ourselves as a church. That's why I share things like this. Because it does happen even in good churches. We've got to be very careful that it doesn't happen here. Because the one thing the devil wants more than anything else in this church today is division. If he can get, divide, get us divided against one another, we'll devour one another. And you cannot afford to do so. We've got enough problems with the world. Father, we thank you for this time together. Bless us. Thank you, Father, for a people that is serious in, in desiring to learn and to grow. And Lord, uh, I thank you, Father, that in spite of the fact that we're not perfect people, we do want to learn so that we can, Father, become more Christ-like in our attitude and our actions. Again, Lord, I know in my own life, Lord, every time I turn around, there's something else that you're just speaking to me about. You're working and you're moving. And I pray, Lord, I'll never get to the place where I will not at least listen to you. I will not allow you, Father, to speak to me, to mold me, to make me. Father, we need you. We love you. And we just ask for your leadership. God, help us to be found faithful to you. In Christ's name, amen.